The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. A lot of you know that at the very heart of the Buddhist teachings, just saying at the very heart of the Buddhist teachings, is this reflection that we sort of get because we've had enough experience, but we we don't really want to take it all the way in. And it really comes to the central relationship in our lives, and it's not with our partner, it's not with our cat or dog or best friend, or even with our body. It's really this relationship we have with our experience and the kind of expectation we have or don't have. And so, um, in a way, some of these teachings are unique to the Buddha. You know, when you look through the history of people talking about this predicament of being a human being, a lot of people have talked about like you got to dig in, you got to, you know, show up and get what you can get in life, and that's sort of what life is about: not holding back, giving it your all. When you get knocked down, stand back up, right? And there's some wisdom in that, in those kind of teachings or encouragement. And then sometimes we hear from folks in religious traditions, life isn't going to deliver, you know, and even if you get something, it's going to go away. It's basically a setup. And... Uh, and you're a fool if you try to make it work. Either work for yourself or work for all beings, if you're more benevolent type, but you're basically a fool because life sucks. Right? So there's a lot of that throughout history, today, in the past. And the Buddha rejected both of those ideas as a means for real happiness, for lasting happiness, relating to the world of experience, really, because that's what's real, our experience, not so much this abstract idea of the world, but my experience as a human being. It isn't here to make me happy, and it isn't here to torment me. You know, the particular circumstances or conditions that we experience, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, keeps changing, And it's interesting how we tend to go from one idea to the next, really thinking that if I just lean in, if I just bring some confidence to the moment, I'll get the kind of conditions, circumstances that will make me happy. I'll get my house together, get my apartment together, get my body together, and then I'll be happy. And then we feel betrayed by that sort of hard work and then we just want to drink or just want to watch TV or just want to give up one way or another. Give up any sort of project about attainment, getting somewhere, getting something. Because we've gotten what appears to us like set up where we thought something was going to make a difference 
and then through hard work and good fortune and a little bit of this, a little bit of that, sometimes we actually get the thing we think we wanted and it feels good for a while, but it isn't very long before it's as if it didn't happen. I mean, we know it happened, but it's not making me happy anymore. It was there, the gratification was real, while it lasted, but it didn't end up lasting very long. I mean, just think about how many times we've wanted something and we've gotten it in our lives. A lot. So we, uh, in Buddhism, the Buddha, his teachings had a lot to do with his reflection on renunciation as a cause for happiness. But the renunciation isn't a rejection of life. It's really a renunciation of this understanding that life is is neither here to make me happy, nor is it here to mess with me. Life or experience, causes and conditions, is here because of the lawfulness of everything in motion. It's really, seems personal, but it's not really personal. I mean... We kind of know that, like, was the weather here to make you happy today? Or if you didn't like the weather today, was it here to make you unhappy? No, it had nothing to do with our happiness or unhappiness. The weather was expressing the complex lawfulness of all those causes and conditions that make weather what it is at any particular moment. It's not really here. Or your dog or your cat and how it related to you today or your partner, or your body. Like, is it personal when you get sick? No, it's just that's what happens sometimes when the lawful conditions that lead to sickness, when enough of those supporting conditions are there, the body gets sick. And when other supporting conditions are there, the body stays healthy. But whether we're healthy or sick, on the way to getting sick, on the way to getting healthy, none of that is actually personal. And the question is, if we're using it to be happy, right? we're in this swinging from hope to despair. You know, Hope that if only conditions are the way I imagine there be, that they'd be great, if only things are the way I want it to be, then I'll be happy. And even then, when there's some excitement because we feel we might get what we want, there's an underlying fear that I'm not going to get what I want. And then we swing the other way where we, we begin to doubt that life can deliver. So we mistakenly think, I should just give up on the project of being alive, being a sensitive human being which is not so easy to do when we're a sensitive human being. So then we have various ways of numbing out. Like, basically, I mean, it's, it's really when we look at it square in the eye, this attitude, this way of being, it never makes sense to be numb. It never, as long as we're a sensitive human being, it never really makes sense to give up, to close down. I mean, I get why I do it. I understand why we do that. Because in moments the pain of life feels too much, 
the only thing the mind can conceive of is to drink or to get lost in TV or a book or... But basically to disconnect. I just don't want to be here, sleep too much, sleep more than we need to be healthy, right? Use drugs, dangerous sex. I mean, basically anything that takes our mind off of what we're feeling. And of course, it's exhausting to run from our life because we can't actually run from it. You know, like if I, my heart's hurting because I feel disconnected, can I run from that? I can temporarily not notice it by getting obsessed about something else. But the pain is still the pain. It's not like the pain goes away. And I'm using a lot of stress, a lot of contraction to keep from noticing it. It's like, you know, the joke is when we see kids, you know, like, la, 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 <laughs> you know. And then the, some version of that becomes a lifelong strategy. Then it's really absurd. I mean, can you imagine your good friend who's had a hard run of things for a while, and that's, that's their strategy. It's just like, you know, self-stimulation that distracts himself, making a lot of noise. And basically, that's what we're like. I see myself sometimes, you know, finding reasons to get up from whatever it is I'm supposed to be doing, even though there's nothing I need to do, you know. And just really, and now in the past, I, it would be humiliating and I'd stop myself from doing it. Now, because I'm wiser, I just let myself be foolish and kind of <laughs> want, and I see more clearly, like at least I'm not trying to control myself and I'm using neurotic activity to see that it doesn't lead to happiness. So this is, in Buddhism, we call this the middle way. And it's not actually a way, like the real firm wisdom is thinking that some sense experience is going to make me happy turns out to not be true. right? So I know I can totally get into getting my garden together or totally get into you know, working on health, trying to make the world a better place, but not because it's going to make me happy. I'm going to do it because it needs to be done. You see this kind of learning, this deep, deep learning sometimes in parents. I'm sure some of you have kids. I don't have kids. But I've seen this enough times. Um, you know, just how absorbing it is to raise children. And, uh, you know, initially you think they're going to make you happy, and then at some point probably uh, parents realize they're not making me happy. <laughs> it's just a lot of work. And then it's sort of like that phase of like wanting your life back. You know, okay, i got to put up with you, but I, but I, I don't really want to do it. And then there's just the point of submission where they're not here as sort of some evil force to cause my suffering, and they're not here to make me happy. Right? 
And it's just, it's like taking care of our body in a way. You can get totally obsessed about taking care of your body as if it's really going to be able to deliver something meaningful in the end. Or you can totally neglect your body. Both of those ways will make us unhappy. Expecting our body, taking care of our body, is really going to give us something. Or neglecting it is really going to, like, we're going to win. Like, God, I, I got away with a lot. I didn't brush my teeth for ten years. <laughs> you know, I'm like really thinking that. <laughs> I haven't touched my bathroom, you know. Just think about how much time I save not cleaning my bathroom once a week. Or all these sort of, you know, just these ideas that we get away with stuff by neglecting or by trying to squeeze something from, you know, how careful we are about exercise or about health and like... Because we see people like that, do they seem happier on average than anybody else? No. I mean, they may be healthier, which is not nothing, but just in terms of the quality of their heart or their mind, probably not necessarily healthier. But nor are people healthier who ignore taking care of the body, taking care of their kids, taking care of their life, taking care of the world. So the middle way is really getting like this optimistic view that I can get something from life and it will be mine and I can depend on it making me happy, we give up on that project with our partners, with our kids, with our body, with our livelihood, our jobs, our passions. It's still okay to have a partner, to have a passion, a hobby, a this or that. But we're doing it because we can, not because we expect it to make us happy. And we can really get into simplicity and not to, you know, not have that many relationships or not have that much stuff. But don't do it because you think it's going to make you happy. Right? Because that gets obsessive. That can be just as much a cause for happiness, uh, unhappiness as pursuing, you know, having a lot. So this is an interesting place where we get clear that thinking life experience is here to make me happy, really starting to doubt that in a wise way. And seeing that rejecting life and rejecting experience also won't make me happy. So that's the middle way. I'm not afraid of sense experience. I'm not afraid of relationship. I'm not afraid of sensitivity. I'm not afraid of enjoying myself. And I'm not expecting it to be the end all. And it really helps us navigate this strange world we're living in, where we do have access, you know, even if you're relatively unprivileged, don't have a lot of resources. Still, there's just a lot that comes with life. A lot of sights, a lot of sounds, a lot of thoughts, a lot of smells and tastes, a lot of experience. And the way we navigate it isn't thinking there's a right and a wrong way. That's such a relief. 
like, oh, I have to live or look like a hermit. Or, no, no, you're not really happy, you're not really successful unless you have X, Y, and Z. i got to look this way. I have to have these things. So we realize, like, we're off the hook about what it's supposed to look like. And we realize it's really this path of understanding, not expecting life to make me happy, not rejecting life, not thinking life is here to screw with me, right? not being afraid to get involved and to do things and to feel things and to taste things. And that's just the... That we can actually practice with, right? That quality of equanimity or balance. So you go home, you know, and we'll, we have a screen somewhere, probably, each of us, some version of a screen at home with endless entertainment opportunities, right? And you can then have this reflection, like I'm not ready for bed. I could probably find something. Oh, no, no, I'm Buddhist. I shouldn't have any entertainment. And then we'll notice that that being attached to that attitude is suffering, right? Or you could have the attitude, yeah, that would be nice. Something funny would be really nice. Or whatever. And then you see that that hunger like, oh yeah, that promise. If I find a decent program, then I'll be happy. Something well-written, Something that I won't be embarrassed to tell my friends tomorrow that I saw. Right? And I'll be happy. So we can notice the promise that something's going to make us happy and see it that way. Oh yeah, that's that, what the Buddha would consider wrong view, not a helpful or wise view, that sense experience is more than what it is. It's not that seeing a good TV program won't be something, right? There is actual gratification. The Buddha has this really pithy statement. He says, whatever gratification there is, I've experienced it. And, you know, as the story goes, we don't, of course, know with certainty, but he came from a very wealthy family and was very privileged. So in that time and time, he really did have a lot. You know, he did experience a lot of sense pleasure what was available at the time. And he said, and whatever drawbacks there are to sense experience, I know that too, by just paying attention. Like no matter how nice it is, it ends. No matter how tasty something is, at some point, it's not pleasurable to eat more. Even TV gets to the point, even if there continues to be good programs you haven't seen, at some point, It's not pleasant to watch anymore, to sleep anymore. This embodied human realm is restless. We never get to that, never get to a place where the sense experience satisfies us in a lasting way. And so we can just keep that in mind and then notice the tendency to want to reject it because we start to see clearly now with wisdom that this 
or that or whatever the sense experience isn't going to lead to lasting happiness, we might want to give up or forget sleep. You're not going to deliver lasting happiness, forget it. Forget food, you're not going to deliver lasting happiness. But we don't sort of neglect it, but it's more about using it as medicine, all sense experience, friendships, food, sleep, exercise, basically all of life experience as a kind of medicine to keep the mind in balance so we can uncover or navigate, maybe a better way of saying it, this middle way where we're learning about not rejecting what comes our way in life in terms of sense experience, and we're not hungrily pursuing experience as if it's going to be more than what it is. I mean, it's a nice thing now in this media age where we can read and watch people who have what we want and really clearly see they're not any happier or wiser than we are. So why is it that we want what they have? Do you know? It's like really interesting. Because we're so convinced. That's the thing about desiring. It's not actually the objects that we desire. We desire that subjective experience of desiring. The hopefulness, the excitement of anticipation. That's what we're really addicted to. Hope. And you don't get hope without fear, right? Because if you think something like, if you're single and you think that perfect person's going to make you happy, right? There's some excitement, there's hope as we imagine, as we fantasize, and then there's fear. Or maybe I'll never find them. Or maybe they won't love me. So fear and hope, hope and fear come together. And it's troublesome, right? Living with hope and fear. Nihilism, giving up, fear at one end, anticipation, excitement, it's going to happen, I'm going to do it, I'll get there. Any kind of attainment view, when I get X, then I'll be happy in a meaningful way. I mean, it's amazing what we'll do to be happy, even though we know if we just reflect even a little bit, it doesn't really last that long. So when you go home tonight, then we'll just practice. And you can start right now, you know, like uh, if I really understand what Mark is saying, then I'll be happy. Or (laughs) giving up on the project of ever understanding. Like, why bother? So this middle way is just being interested about not getting caught. One of the images used in the tradition is a log floating down a river. right? And that's, it's nice, because the Buddha often uses these naturalistic analogies. and, And very impersonal, right? So we're the log floating on the river. You can kind of imagine. And then our practice is not getting caught on a bank. Right? One side of the bank is happiness, and the other side of the bank is unhappiness. 
So happiness in a more ordinary, I'm happy because I have what I want. I'm unhappy because I don't have what I want. So we think that life is here to sort of get stuff. But maybe the real path to check out, right? Because you really have to check it out. We don't want to do it on blind faith. We really want to check out like living this evening as if I'm really not trying to get anything from life. And I'm really not trying to get away from life either. So if you have really nice sheets, put them on the bed. Don't go, oh no, I need rougher sheets. (laughs) Because I don't want to get attached to the pleasant feeling of good sheets or something like that. It doesn't matter. So this way we don't pathologize for those of you who have more than average, you know, wealthier or whatever, privileged conditions, you don't have to give it all away. I mean, you can. It be, could be a beautiful gesture. But you don't have to. Because what we're finding is the middle way is not being attached and not being afraid. And then, so whatever comes we practice being released, not entangled. So if we go through a really rough patch with a lot of uh, ill health, we're sick, nobody loves us, we have difficulty with our finances, the cat runs away, right? We don't, get confused by the pain, the real pain of that experience. We don't turn it into misery. Or if really good stuff happens to us, we don't imagine somebody, me, is saved. Oh, now it's like this. Now it's like that. There's a story, I think, from the Zen tradition. It goes something like this. There's a farmer with some kids. And uh, the couple is so happy, the farming couple is so happy to find that a wild horse just shows up at the farm and they catch it. And all the neighbors are so impressed. Oh my God, that's a good looking horse. You are so lucky. And this couple, they were pretty wise. They said, well, who knows? Who knows? A couple days later, they were thinking about taming the horse so they could use it. And their oldest son got on the horse, he got bucked off, broke his leg. And all the neighbors came by, oh, really, too bad. You need your son to do all the work on the farm. What are you going to do? This is not good. And this wise couple, they just said, well, who knows? Who knows? And then a few days later, the army marched through town, taking away all the young men to go off to war, but not their son because he had a broken leg. And all the neighbors came by and said, you are so lucky. We are not lucky at all. Our older boys got taken away, but your son will be healed in a month or so and he'll be fine. And they go, well, who knows? And then a few days later, the horse that they had grown to love and eventually had tamed takes off, jumps over the fence, gone. And they're disappointed again. The neighbors come and same story. 
farming couple says, well, who knows? Then a few days later, the horse comes back, followed by a lot of other wild horses. (laughs) And they gallop right into the corral, and they get... And now they've got a whole herd of horses. And the neighbors are so amazed. So that's just a little funny story about that equanimity. Oh, so now it's like this. In, in the suttas, in the Buddhist teachings, there's a teaching on the eight vicissitudes or the eight worldly winds of gain and loss, pain and pleasure, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. And just to, you know, this would be a very powerful teaching just to remember in the morning. Well, who knows today? Praise and blame. Maybe today will be more on the blame end of things. Or maybe today will be more on the praise end of things. Maybe today will be more on the pain or more on the pleasure. More on the fame, more on the disrepute. There's just a story that I heard about recently. A very well-known teacher in this country, Chula Dasa, um, teaches in uh, um, Arizona, I think his center is. He's written a really uh, wonderful book. A lot of people have benefited from on how to meditate. The Illuminated Mind. I haven't read it, but a lot of people speak highly of it. But anyway, there's just some pretty serious allegations about sexual misconduct that just sort of announced. You know, it's sort of, he was like the buzz. People were flying around to practice with him. And now, not so much, right? I mean, it's pretty new, so we'll see how it all plays out. But he was asked to resign from the organization that he had started. And, uh, yeah, so this is something that we experience and we see around us, this just getting blown around. Now, do we, does it make sense as a human being interested in real happiness, right? Because I think that's probably true for all of us. Does it make sense for us to tie our happiness to something that is constantly being blown around by causes and conditions that nobody controls. Praise and blame, fame and disrepute. I'm not saying that he wasn't to blame for his actions, but in a way, there are always preceding causes and preceding causes and preceding causes. And we're all getting pushed around by our own conditioning, our own neurotic conditioning, right? So on this relative level, people are responsible for their actions. But we're getting pushed around by causes and conditions all the time. And if we, on top of that, because there's no way that's going to change. Like maybe you have a genetic disposition for some kind of cancer or some kind of obesity or some kind of hair loss or some kind of dementia or some kind of whatever. You know, maybe in 200 years or 50 years when technology improves, we're all cyborgs or something, (laughs) we'll take care of that. But for the meantime, you know, we're just sort of getting pushed around by this genetic conditioning that we have. Same thing with the world. I mean, it's great to get involved to try to make the world a more sane, peaceful, just place, but there are a lot of other forces. So even with engagement, 
no guarantees about how things are going to play out with the environment, with things around social justice and democratic values. We don't know how things are going to play out. So does it make sense? Because then we're just in this hope and fear cycle all the time. We look at the news, hope, fear. How many times today I put myself in that boat that I get pushed around by hope and fear by just looking at the news, this and that, you know, wanting hope, wanting to, you know, kind of reading into some things to make it more hopeful or more in the nihilistic point of view. And so reading into things to sort of feed my hopelessness, we're doomed, we're going to hell because I want to be right. So when I'm in the hopeful point of view, I want to be right. This is really going to matter. This is really going to change things. And when I'm in the despairing point of view, I really want it to be true too. And we're really learning to reject both of those extremes. Thinking life is going to, you know, some condition, some circumstances really going to be the cause for me to be happy in a lasting way. Thinking life is a problem. Thinking it, sense experience is a problem, is a setup. I'm doomed. I just want out. Get me out of here. And then we get really seduced by ideas of heaven. You know, that place where everything's perfect. Instead of the more pragmatic issue, which the Buddha points to, how to be peaceful when things are not perfect, like life. Right? How to be at ease, how to be loving and wise when things are imperfect how to be open and kind and calm when things are imperfect. And that's the middle way. Because we're not wasting our time hoping that things get better or lamenting when things get worse. We're interested with whatever's showing up in the moment. Well, what would ease look like when the conditions are like this? What would love look like when conditions are like they are right now. Because can you imagine, can you conceive of any experience that might show up for you, of body, of mind, internal conditions, external conditions? Can you imagine some situation where it would be impossible for you or for anybody to be opening or relating to that experience in a kind way? or in a wise way, right? Like it could be the most despicable thing happening to you, but wouldn't it be possible to be relating with love, even if the worst possible thing was happening? I'm not saying it would be easy, right? But it's conceivable. We, This is what we call saints, right? People who, in really difficult conditions, manifest really beautiful qualities. So we kind of know that it's possible. We see it every once in a while in ourselves and in others. When something difficult happens or something really beautiful happens, the person's heart, mind, stays in balance. They don't lose it. You know, where something good happens, they become prideful. They think they're better than because something good has happened to them which had very little, you know, we always 
tell a story. Well, yeah, it was my hard work. We never, you know, really deconstruct how much privilege was behind what happened. The sort of systemic good uh, fortune that, you know, certain people have that allow them to have favorable circumstances. Or people who end up, you know, when we think of some of these people who end up shooting people, you know, when just to think about whatever kind of causes and conditions led them to do really terrible things. So it doesn't really make sense to sort of claim the good stuff or the bad stuff. What really makes sense is to know there will be, relatively speaking, good stuff and bad stuff. It's going to happen to each of us, not exactly the same, of course, but we're all going to have these ups and downs. And what really seems to make sense is how to be in this world without suffering, without being pushed around by these ups and downs or confused by them. How to be peaceful and wise and kind no matter the particular moment of being up or down. And it'd be nice to hear from folks just like how that might have have looked for you over the years in your practice. So I'm just going to end by reading a couple quotes and then open it up for discussion. Since I find it. Oh, here it is. So this is again from the Buddha. Whatever is not yours, practitioners, abandon it. When you have abandoned it, that will be that will lead to your welfare and happiness for a long time. And what is not yours? Material form is not yours. Sights, sounds, smells, tastes, and touches. They're just what they are, you know, those results of sensitivity. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. So don't expect them to be more than touch or sound or sight or smell or taste. Right? It's not your taste. It's just, oh yeah, it's sweet now. And now it's over. Right? Or now smoothness. But like when you go and touch your nice sheets, then if you tell yourself, my sheets my smoothness, right? Then you have problems. (laughs) So material form is not yours. Feeling is not yours. Abandon it. So the pleasant feelings that you experience, the unpleasant feelings, the neutral tone that you experience at times. Feelings come our way. Being a sensitive being all the time, we have this feeling tone and then that feeling tone. Everything has a feeling tone, a pleasantness to it, an unpleasantness to it, a neutrality to it. But those things come and go according to conditions. So the Buddha says, abandon attachment. Don't try to feed on feeling. When it's pleasant, know that it's pleasant, but don't feed on it. When it's unpleasant, know that it's unpleasant, but don't feed on it. And even when it's neutral, know it's just neutral and don't feed on it. And then mental formations are not yours. Abandon them. 
So mental, mental formations are all the intentions and dispositions we have. Like when I see something or experience something, then anything related to the to that experience from the past, those past tendencies come to the surface in the mind. But even that stuff, like memory, which seems so personal, it's not really personal. It's just like it got laid down in a very impersonal way, how memory and habit and our dispositions. It's so interesting, you know, just to see things like you get your our relaxed cat just sort of hanging out. Every once in a while, you know, there will be something that looks enough like a snake. So it's just in a total chilled out mode. And then it was just see something, you know, and it just sort of jumps, right? That's its disposition, right? Whether that's genetic or learned. But like to be frightened by that little shape that might be a snake. It's not personal. So all that stuff that happens, like when someone praises you and you respond in the way you've been conditioned to respond, or somebody does this to you and you react in the way you've been conditioned, that reactivity is not you. So don't get attached to it. Just know, okay, reactivity, that's how it is sometimes. And then the last is, the Buddha says, consciousness is not yours Abandon it. Abandon attachment. So even the knowing, which in a way is the hardest thing to learn not to be attached to. Consciousness or awareness itself. But the thing is, you know, we feel, oh my God, I'll be left in the dark. But being attached to consciousness doesn't make consciousness. You know what I mean? I mean, we kind of know that intellectually. The gripping of consciousness, the wanting to be aware, the wanting to be awake has nothing to do with consciousness being there or not being there. Whatever consciousness is, are you doing it? (laughs) No, it's not personal. Whatever it is, I mean, it's definitely a mystery. But one thing, even in our sort of fumbling way, we can get pretty clear that I can pretend I'm doing it, you know. I can, in a deluded way, say, yeah, I'm being aware. But when I really look, and you don't need to be that wise to get this, I'm not doing awareness. I'm not doing consciousness. It's there, but I'm not doing it. So I'm going to abandon the habit in my mind. I'm going to retrain my mind not to take it personally. Yeah, that doesn't mean I suddenly going to stop having consciousness because I'm not taking personally. I'm just not going to have that neurotic sense it's me. It's just consciousness doing what consciousness does. It illuminates experience so that it can be known. That's all. It's not really personal. And then he ends by saying, when you have abandoned it, that will lead to your welfare and happiness for a long time. Right. So that letting go of attachment to the body and the mind is what the Buddha says leads to real freedom or happiness. But we have about 12 minutes. It'd be nice to hear from several of you what you've learned or questions that have come up with this talk. I ask that people stay until the end. We'll end right at 9 o'clock, but it's, it's kind of the etiquette at the center to stay to the very end, if you don't mind.
So who'd like to begin? Yeah, Travis. So hi, I'm uh, Travis. I This all resonates with me a lot just because I was thinking of a few years ago, due to stress, I started experiencing like psychosomatic illness. And then through that, that led to addiction to pills. And it was just like I was in this hellish like kind of groundhog day like the movie just like every day was just horrible and I was just angry and and uh oh it was just really awful and there was no insight going on because then like I've heard you talk about with medications or with drugs that that it's like a situation where you can't talk yourself out of it um I've come a long way since then so now I've got good things happening like my wife and I are getting our first house we want to have kids but then I'm like oh well there can still be stress attached to that because then you're so excited about this stuff and it's it it's just crazy I've I've tried to just learn to just let feelings pass through me instead of getting stuck on them or forcing right, them a certain right. way I guess you could say yeah that sounds wise like we will have that momentary uh, kind of excitement when something as good as in motion or what we have been conditioned to think of as good as in motion. But then wisdom can be there very quickly that understands, well, who knows, right? Because you don't, you just, you just know that we have this opportunity to buy the house, but who knows? We have this opportunity, this possibility of having kids, but who knows how it's going to play out? And, you're kind of, you're not throwing water on the idea of getting the house or having kids, but you're throwing water on the idea, the sort of um, unconscious assumption that it will be the cause for my happiness. It will be the cause for happiness and unhappiness, right? Yeah. <laughs> but that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it, yeah. because not doing it will be the cause for your happiness and unhappiness too. Yes. So that's what that's the other side. Like we don't want to pretend that there's any way out except to participate in life. So we really want to go for it, show up, do the dance, because there's no way to not dance. And thinking that I'm not going, you can't make me dance. That's just your dance. You know, <laughs> you can't make me. Oh, that's how's that working for you? You know, as a dance. You might as well get a house yeah. and see how it goes. <laughs> Very true. Yeah, thanks, Travis, for getting us going. Who'd like to go next? Thanks. Yeah, all the way in the back. Hi, I'm Rena. Thank you for a lovely teaching. Um, I really enjoy that concept of not taking things personally because I think that's so easy to do with very minimal things in life. Um, but my question is, what would be taught about reactions when people react to you in something that feels like a personal manner, if they have a negative reaction or a judgmental reaction, um, you know, what would what would Buddhism say about handling that? Yeah. Well, if we feel safe enough in that moment, then we can really use it as a powerful teaching, not to be judgmental, but just to observe as best you can from an outside perspective how are they doing. You know, be, being reactive to you. You know, do they look like a happy human being? Do they seem to be suffering? Right? And basically, we want to correlate over and over again if it's actually true. Attachment equals suffering. Non-attachment equals freedom. But a lot of what we're doing is really getting clear what is the essential nature of attachment 
in what is non-attachment because we have to have a lot of humility. We can pretend non-attachment, a kind of indifference, but that's not non-attachment. That's what we were just talking about, like engagement. You can be engaged and non-attached because the only way to be non-attached is to be really intimate. Like you've got to really be in it to realize how you can be in it without being attached. It's like, I, I use the comment, you know, like something going on, something that's been interesting for me to read about is what's going on in Hong Kong with the mostly younger people, but really a lot of the population just uh, standing up for their rights. And... Uh, and I can say, you know, I have a lot of equanimity. I'm not really attached. I'm curious, but I'm not really attached. Well, I'm not really attached because I'm distant, you know? And if I, if I had a lot of friends there, it'd be a different experience to be non-attached. Like, this thing is going to play out as it's going to play out. A lot of people might get hurt or not. I don't really know. I know nature will have its way here. But it's a totally different experience of non-attachment when they're my relatives or my loved ones or my, you know, I'm there myself even. So non-attachment really involves engagement. So you can see that, you know, when they're reacting to you and you see the suffering, there's engagement and there's gripping. And you can see it. And then you can see the tendency in your own mind to want to take the bait, right? And just... Because we tend to react to attachment and reactivity with attachment and reactivity. But we really want to say it ends here. Like, the world is on fire with this kind of reactivity. The last thing I want to do is myself suffer and contribute, feed the fires of reactivity. So if we are going to read the news, to be an informed citizen we should really prepare ourselves to practice non-reactivity. Okay, this is how it is. Is my reactivity helping anybody, serving any cause? My, I, my wife and I sometimes, I, we joke, mostly about me, like contempt. Like I really try to name contempt with a little humor because it's, we, it goes, it seems like appropriate to have contempt, like we're actually serving some purpose, except really it's just the heart's getting tight. And then we're not really good for anybody for those moments when we're contemptuous. Thanks for the question. Thank you. Time for one more. Anybody over here? Comment or a question, even just a sharing from your own life. Moments of that balance in the ups and downs of the eight worldly winds that we talked about earlier. Yeah, please. Hi, my name is Naomi. Um, it's kind of a story, but then you were talking about consciousness, so also a question. So a year ago, I had a major bike accident, and I went for a 70-mile bike ride, flipped over my handlebars, and had a traumatic brain injury, but it only affected my memory. So for days I was in the hospital and was in a loop, 
and kept waking up and asking, what happened? Where am I? Would fall asleep, ask the same question, and then started to regain my memory, but not sure how much. But through that experience, it was actually a totally profound opening, and it was the most beautiful experience where I could sense things and taste things and was more awake to life, like the um, the erase the erasing of my memory actually opened up my heart chakra in a way that I'd never felt before. Um, but my hope, my career, my life was all intellectual. So I had to shed this part of my life. I couldn't remember what I was doing moment to moment. So I had to be totally present in the moment to everything that was happening so I could smell things, taste things, experience things, but wasn't getting caught up in them. And then through that and living through those experiences, it's... Um, I've shifted into a place where there's a lot of synchronicities happening, and I'm so present in the moment that I'm not sure if it's like I'm almost going mad, but I know I'm not going mad because my, I'm manifesting thoughts in the moment that I'm having them. But I know it's consciousness, and it's not me. It's like I'm in the dance, and I'm totally present in all the moments that are existing within me. So... When it's not your consciousness, how do you do that dance? When you know that it's not you, but you're in it, but you're trying to be totally present right. in it. Yeah, and who needs a story about what it is? Do you need a story? Like, like let's say that's all just as you described. So what's the problem? Like, why do you, do you need a story? Because It's you, not the story. It's more, am I going mad? Because you know you have a head injury, but you know it's not. You're also not going mad yeah, because yeah. it's so real and so. Yeah, but, you're not but the interesting thing is that our life is subjective in this way. Do you know what I mean? I mean, we have what we call this consensual reality, which is like my story. We spent some time together and we're trying to see if we can come to some shared story temporarily. But mostly, I'm even even in that, I'm deciding whether your story is like my story, and you're deciding if my story is like, you know what I mean? We're just in our own world. So whatever this is, sorry to say this, this is my mind. But you could say the same thing, right? Because all of this is happening in my mind, my experience. Just like everything that's happening to you is happening in your mind. We don't really directly know what we might call external reality. We just know our mind's experience. We don't even know whether there's an external reality. We only know our subjective mind experience of things. So that's why it can get trippy. And the key when it's like, as you described, is don't try to figure it out. Just live your life. Be a good person. Be a loving person, contribute, you know, set, set beauty in motion, and let that be enough. And then, you know, when you have those kind of profound questions, am I crazy, or is this really happening, you know, the, the, the important question next is, do I need to answer that question? Because you may not need to answer that question. May, like the ambiguity, maybe I, I don't know. Is that okay? Yeah, it's okay not to know the answer to that question. Because it's working, right? Ask, is anybody getting harmed? You know, not that I'm aware of. 
you know, do I feel safe enough? Yeah. Thanks for sharing with us. I'm glad you came out and learned. Sounds like amazing things. So let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Just enough time for one or two breaths together. Thanks for coming, everyone. Really nice to be here together. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.